All right. Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Mother's Day to all you moms uh, that are out there. Um, certainly, we are grateful for you, uh, and we can only imagine those of you, especially with young children, uh, this last uh, couple of months have been certainly a challenge for you as you become uh, not only moms, but teachers and, and all of the like. And so we're grateful for you. We appreciate you and, and certainly the Lord's blessing upon you. This morning, we're going to turn to uh, Mark chapter 13 once more. We're going to continue our study there uh, of the, that question that I asked last week, are we seeing signs of the end? Now, uh, chapter 13, 35, 36 verses that are there. I think it's 37 verses that are there. And we're going to take this chapter into three different studies. And so last week, we looked at, if you will, sort of the beginning of the chapter and the beginning of those things that Jesus was speaking about. This week, we're going to plant ourselves right there in the middle in verses 14 through verses uh, or verse 18 and consider sort of the middle of those events that Jesus was talking about. And then we'll come together again as the Lord allows next week. Uh, and we will um, look at the conclusion of the chapter. So please begin turning there with me to Mark chapter 13, if you haven't already done so. While you're turning there, let me just remind you, last week I used a term that was called the foreshortening of history. And what I meant by that, I'll remind you, what I meant by that is the tendency of Bible prophecy to speak of a series of events in a way in which it, it gives this picture that it's one thing right after the other, right after the other. And yet what we have discovered in our study of the scriptures is many of those events that are found in the exact same Bible verse or maybe even the same sentence, sometimes thousands of years separate those particular events. And we're seeing that in our study of the opening verses of Mark chapter 13, that Olivet Discourse in which Jesus shares with his disciple, uh, disciples those events that are going to be taking place in the history of the world prior to his return, the, the return of Jesus Christ. And so in our passage of study last week, uh, in those opening verses, we look at events that were only 40 years away from when Jesus spoke them, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple uh, in 70 AD. Today, we're going to be looking at events that are still yet future to us, 2,000 years later. And so again, what we have is this foreshortening of history in which as they look forward, uh, sort of the, the duration of these things is, is blurred a bit, and it appears as if one right after the other, right after the other. So let's, uh, let's begin by sort of a reminder of where we were last week. Last week, uh, we, we focused on those things experienced by followers of Jesus Christ during what we commonly refer to as the church age. So those things that exist from when Jesus left the scene and the 2,000 years of this church age. And then I also pointed out to you that some of those events were going to be things that were experienced and saw in the very early years of what is called the tribulation period. And so things like wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilences, famines, and an increased uh, bit of persecution uh, and hostility toward God and toward the people of God. But you'll remember, last week I was pointing out, I spent most of my time doing so, those things were not the sign of the end, but they were like birth pains. They were signs of things that are coming, but not yet the very end in and of themselves. And Jesus even said that. He says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet, 
For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes there will be in various places as well as famines, but these are but the beginning of birth pains. And so all of these wars and all of these rumors of wars and these earthquakes and these global pandemics and the persecution that I pointed out to you last week, all of these things that we are seeing are not the sign that the end is here, but rather it's the increase of these things, the frequency of these things that we're seeing and the growth in intensity from which we are seeing these things. That is the sign that the end is approaching and that the end is drawing near. Think about what your doctor or what a person, a woman's doctor will say when uh, she's about to go into labor. And so the husband, the wife, someone will call out, reach out to the doctor, and the doctor will ask that question, well, how long have the contractions been occurring? How intense, they'll ask, are the contractions? And what is the frequency uh, of the waves in which they come and of which they go? And then it's based on that information that the doctor will either say, look, you can hang at home a little bit longer, or look, you need to get in the car and you need to get down here. They'll ask those questions about the frequency and the intensity of the birth pains. And Jesus said to us, when you see these things happening, and when you see them happening with greater frequency and greater intensity, you can know that the end is drawing near. Now, last week in our time, the majority of our time, I spent applying those things we see in the opening 13 verses to the church age. What I also pointed out, however, is that these things are not solely going to be experienced by the people of God in the church age, but that rather they will continue right into uh, the right through the close of the church age and into the opening years of that seven-year period of time that I introduced last week, which is commonly referred to as the tribulation. And so as you look at Jesus' disciples, every one of those disciples that Jesus spoke to with this discourse, every one of them experienced the things that Jesus said they would experience. And as you look at church history, his disciples continue to experience these things throughout the history of the church, um, extending from the year 30 all the way till 2030, as we're approaching uh, that year. And the people of God in this dis dispensation that you and I find ourselves are going to experience these things as well. And so we see the proliferation of false religions, fake religions, false messiahs. We see, we hear of wars and rumors of wars, of famines in different parts of the world, and of pestilences. And the church, maybe not yet so much here in the United States, but certainly around the world, the church increasingly is despised and rejected and even killed because they name the name of Christ and they believe in the saving power of Jesus alone. And so then, Jesus' warning to those four disciples that asked the question, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, his warning to those four men is certainly applicable uh, to you and I as well. And so there's great value in looking at those warnings and considering them. And so let me begin by reading today in verse 9. We read it last week, but we'll read it again. It says, Now, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you 
who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures unto the end will be saved. Now you'll notice that Jesus counsels his disciples to respond to all of those things. You'll notice that he counsels them in three different ways to respond to those signs. Two of them, two of those responses are direct admonitions, do this. And the third one is an indirect admonition, if you will. Let's take a look at him. Right away, he begins at verse 9 with the first of the admonitions, and he says to them, but be on your guard. But be on your guard. Now, that's an interesting phrase, and it's a phrase that's rich with meaning. To be on your guard is to see, but it's a little different than just taking notice of something. It is to see in a way that is perceptive. It's to see and to understand. It's to discern the meaning of something. And it's the whole point behind what Jesus said elsewhere when he said, now when, they, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. It's to see and to understand or to see with discernment. And so when we see these things happening, we are to respond accordingly. How did Luke say it? Straighten up and raise your heads. Be on your guard, the first warning for us. Secondly, Jesus tells his disciple, disciples not to allow these things to cause them to become anxious. And we read that there in verse 11. It says, when they bring you to trial and when they deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you will say, but say what the Holy Spirit leads. Now, we can understand, I'm sure every one of us watching this, we could understand how persecution and being delivered over to councils would cause anxiety. But yet Jesus says, don't be anxious. And specifically, don't be anxious about what you will say and how you will say it and what you will communicate. Because he says there that the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak or give that person the words to speak in that particular moment of time. And that brings us then to this third admonition of the Lord. So be on your guard, don't be anxious. And now the third admonition, which isn't specifically stated, but it's certainly indirectly implied. And that is this idea of being dependent upon the Holy Spirit. You'll notice he says, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say. And then he says, say whatever is given you in that hour by the Holy Spirit. Be on your guard, do not be anxious, and now the third admonition, live in dependence upon God's Holy Spirit. How is God's Holy Spirit leading? How is God's Holy Spirit directing? What are the words that he is prompting you to speak? And so Jesus now, he tells his disciples not to worry about what they would say and how they would give an answer for that. He says, because in that moment, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know we have numerous examples of this scattered uh, throughout the book of Acts. One of those, right off the bat, involves a couple of the men that are sitting right here with Jesus asking this question and hearing his answer to their question. That's found in Acts chapter 4. That's where Peter and John stood before the, the Jewish officials, the same officials that had Jesus crucified, stood before them and they testified of Jesus Christ. Starting at verse 7 of Acts 4, we read this. And when the rulers and the elders and the scribes had set Peter and John in the midst, 
they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? And then notice this, verse 8, and then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man and by what means this man has been healed, you let it be known unto you today and to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, this man is standing before you. It's a super answer. But it, and part, the reason why it's a super answer is because the Holy Spirit is the one doing the answering in this instance. We see that throughout the book of Acts. We see that uh, continued to, to see powerful examples of that throughout the history of God's church. And you likely have experienced it as well where you have found yourself placed on the spot, you're in some circumstance, and somebody sort of turns and they ask you on the spot to give uh, an answer, give a reason. No time to think, no time to prepare. You just simply have time to open up your mouth and open up your heart, and God begins to speak through you. Jesus says here, the Lord will give you the words to speak. Now, I do want to take a moment here and consider, does this mean that we throw away sort of our commentaries and our study guides? Does this mean we abandon all of our preparation times? Does it mean that we stop preparing in any way and I'm just going to let God do what God does and let go and let God, as people say? Well, there are a lot of people that teach that, some that say that. I'm not in that particular camp. What Jesus is doing here, Jesus is promising that persecuted believers on trial for their faith in Christ would be given divine help while making their defense of Christ. Somebody has said this, and I thought it really explained it well. This promise of the Lord is for martyrs, not for ministers. Jesus promises here in Mark chapter 13, it should never be used as an excuse for not preparing a sermon, for instance, or not preparing a gospel message, and instead saying, well, I'm just going to wait for supernatural help in that particular time. Because I, I think it's, it's really important to understand, we're not like some superstitious people. I think it's really important for us to understand that the Holy Spirit works just as miraculously to prepare us in our times of study as he does in those instances where he just sort of takes over and speaks. Now, one of those seems to be more spiritual, but both of those require dependence upon the Holy Spirit to work through us. And that's what Jesus was getting to when he gave that third admonition to his disciples, be dependent upon the Holy Spirit for the words to speak. These days, which Jesus is speaking about, they are going to be difficult days indeed for those that are followers of the Lord. Notice what Jesus says in verse 12. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death. Father will betray their children. Fathers will betray their children. And children will betray their parents. And those, it says, who name the name of Christ, they will be hated for his name's sake. Matthew, in his account of this discourse, he records that Jesus also included or added that many will fall away and that many will betray one another and that because lawlessness will be increased that the love of many will grow cold. And so dark days indeed. 
Yet both Mark and Matthew include, and they add, but the one who endures unto the end will be saved. Now, of course, that doesn't mean, and it's not meant to imply, that the person that endures unto the end will somehow earn salvation as a result of that endurance. It can't mean that, because if it did mean that, it would contradict the whole idea and concept of how salvation comes about in a person's life. Jesus' point is not that uh, the per- a person receives salvation because of their endurance. Rather, his point, uh, because we know, I should say, that nothing a person can do can earn their own salvation. We trust solely in the work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. But what's going to happen in these dark days is that the church will be winnowed, if you will. Because those that make a mere profession of faith will very, very quickly abandon that faith when death is on the line. And so endurance until the end will be evidence of the reality of a person's faith. To say it another way, those that are genuinely saved will genuinely endure. That's the point that Jesus is getting at here. Those who endure until the end will be saved. Now, let me change gears. Let me move slightly in a different direction. Throughout our discussion of verses 1 through 13 now, these past two weeks, I've been primarily applying these things to those saints that were part of the church age. That is, I've been focusing on the experience of believers that extend from the book of Acts all the way until the present day. But as I've made mention previously, the prophecy of Jesus goes beyond the present church age, and it goes into the opening years of the tribulation as well. And so now let's transition um, from discussing the church to making direct application and making direct application to our lives. Let's transition now to looking at that tribulation period and the opening years of that tribulation period. You're no doubt familiar with the term theology. It's a pretty common term. Theology, literally translated, it means the study of God. It means the study of the things of God. There's a type of theology which is known as eschatology. And eschatology, it means the study of future things, or it's commonly uh, thought of the, the, the study of end times, events, that are revealed to us in God's word. The tribulation is the platform upon which all of those end-time events stands. Now, before I go any further, let me just make this note. But I know, I understand that not every believer agrees as to the specifics of when, where, and how end-time events are going to play out. And in truth, there's enough symbolic language, there's enough vagaries in the various places in the Bible that discuss last day's events that good people with good intentions, can come up with differing understandings of when, where, how end-time events are going to occur. Good and godly individuals can come to different conclusions on these things. And so I know, I believe, there are non-negotiable issues in the Christian faith, things like sin and judgment and the death and resurrection of Christ and Trinity and the Trinity. They're non-negotiable. If you don't believe them, then you're not holding to the uh, essential doctrines of the Christian faith. At the same time, there are other secondary issues in the Christian faith that, though important, are not necessarily essential for us to agree on. 
What we do agree on is what the Apostle Paul said, that all things should be done in love. And so whether we come to exact agreement on all of these non-essential, important but non-essential issues, whether we have agreement or not, we are called to love one another in these things. And so we don't have to go up and take up arms against one another to get them to see it the way that we do necessarily. And so as we continue forward this morning, I fully understand that others may disagree with some of the timing that I'm going to suggest uh, and some of the specifics of the things I'm going to suggest. And that's totally okay with me. I don't think any of you should believe me just simply because I say certain things. You have Bibles. I think like the Apostle Paul commended that group of believers in the, the city of Berea, he referred to them, he said, the Berean Jews were of more noble character because they received the message with great eagerness and then they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So don't believe me just because I'm telling you or saying these things this morning. Examine the scripture. See if these things are, are so. Look into them for yourself. And so with that, let's dig in. Let me take a sip of water. Last week, we learned from the book of Daniel that the end of days, as we present at the end of days that, that we presently know, there is going to be a seven-year period of time, which is commonly referred to as the tribulation. We see that in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. And it uses that term there, that term week. Now, that can be a confusing term. It says week. How do you come up with seven years? We think of week as seven days. Again, be reminded that in the way that we use the term decade for 10 years, the Jewish people use the word week to describe seven years. And as you look there in Daniel chapter 9, notice in verse 27, it says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. The prince who is to come will make a strong covenant with many for one week. And that's how we are able to deduce that that tribulation period is going to be a seven-year period of time. Now, who is the prince who is to come? Well, he's commonly referred to, most people are aware of him as, the Antichrist. And we think of the movies that are out there, the horror movies of the Antichrist that is coming. That term, Antichrist, capital A, it might surprise you to know it is only used one time in the Bible. The word Antichrist is only used seven times in the Bible. One time with a capital A to describe a specific person, and six additional times to describe sort of this this antichrist spirit that is in the world. Not a, not a spirit in the sense of a demon, just sort of this flavor that is working itself out in the world. The word is more commonly used to describe that spirit than it is that person. Terms that are used when speaking of this individual, or as we see here in the book of Daniel, the prince who is to come. Paul called him the man of lawlessness in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And then in the book of Revelation, he's repeatedly referred to as the beast. And we see that in five or six different places in the opening verses of Revelation chapter 13. The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the prince who is to come, the beast, all describing the same individual who will rise to power during that tribulation period of time. And as we see in that Daniel passage that I referenced a moment ago, this prince who will come will sign a strong covenant with many 
as we said, for one week or for seven years. Now, we don't know specifically, we don't know exactly what that strong covenant will be or what exactly it will consist of. But as we study scripture in other places, what we can deduce is that it's some sort of a peace agreement that will involve the nation of Israel and another nation or nations as well. It's a peace agreement. And of course, any person that can come up with a peace agreement that will satisfy the nation of Israel and its surrounding neighbors, they will have accomplished something that world leaders have been trying to accomplish now for the last 80 years. President Trump, when talking about a peace agreement in the Middle East, he said such a negotiated plan, if it actually worked, he called it, he said, would be the ultimate deal. Truman tried to orchestrate such a deal. President Nixon and President Carter and President Reagan and President Bush and President Clinton, and you get the idea, every president, one after the other after the other, have tried to negotiate such a deal, as have world leaders from countless other countries of the world. And none of them have been able to do so, not lasting peace. This man of peace that we read about in our scriptures, he will be able to accomplish what scores of other leaders and organizations this last century have tried and repeatedly failed to accomplish. We don't know exactly what that peace agreement will entail, but we do know that one of the parties of the agreement will be the nation of Israel. A nation that ceased to exist in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, and yet miraculously, following World War II, 1948, miraculously, nearly 1,900 years after it ceased to exist, was reborn, literally out of the depths, out of the rubble, so that it could take its place as one of the nations of the world. And miraculously, despite the opposition, despite the hatred from nearly all of its surrounding neighbors, that nation continues to exist, and sometimes against all odds. If you ever get a chance, look at uh, the 1948 war, uh, the day after Israel became a nation, and how the surrounding nations attacked it with the goal of driving it into the sea, they said. Look at the Six-Day War, or the Yom Kippur War, and the miraculous way that God has protected this nation, even in the midst of its enemies. It's a miracle. It's a modern-day miracle. Now, there's all kinds of theories and ideas as to who the Antichrist will be. Just about every modern-day president, and modern-day uh, America is defined as uh, that which is after 1950, just about every modern-day president has had speculations made about them that they were the Antichrist. Charismatic people and world leaders are often thought that they might be the Antichrist. People have come out and they've called Oprah Winfrey the Antichrist. Michael Jackson has been called the Antichrist. The Russian leader Vladimir Putin has been called the Antichrist. And so if you have any global success in some way, you have likely been called or at least thought that you might be the Antichrist. I think it's pretty unlikely the world will have any idea who the Antichrist is until the Antichrist is actually revealed. And so I think all of those attempts at naming him are pretty, pretty much exercises in futility. We know what the Bible tells us. 
and we can deduce, and we take it with a grain of salt, but we can deduce some hints for, uh, that the Bible gives us as well. What we know is that there will be a global figure who will come on the scene, sign a seven-year peace agreement between Israel and some other nation or nations, and that the signing of that agreement will mark the start of the tribulation period. That world leader will be hailed as a hero. He will have been able to do what nobody else before him was able to do. Nations will begin to cede their authority to him. And little by little, or perhaps lot by lot, global authority will become his. And then blam, look at verse 14 very quickly, everything is going to change. Verse 14, it says this, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation. Now Jesus hints a bit here at what the abomination of desolation is. You'll notice as he describes it, he says, uh, standing where he ought not to be. So he gives a sort of a hint of it, but not enough information to really deduce what it is. Other places in the Bible does provide more and greater detail. And so, for instance, in Daniel chapter 11, we read this. Forces, now it's talking about the Antichrist. It says, forces from him shall appear, and they shall profane the temple and the fortress, and they shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolation. And so we take the words that Jesus used, abomination of desolation, and we see how Daniel uses the same term, and he speaks of it in reference to the taking away of the regular burnt offering and the profaning of the temple. And so we see they're tied together. This is what the book of Revelation says, starting in verse 12 of the 13th chapter. It says, it exercises, this is referring to uh, the, be, the false prophet. It says, it exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Now, the first beast is the Antichrist. I showed you that earlier. And so this second beast, this false prophet, will make all the earth and its inhabitants worship the Antichrist. Verse 14 says, it orders them to set up an image in honor of the beast. And then it goes on at the end there in verse 14, and calls all who refuse to worship the image to be killed. Paul the Apostle, in the book of 2 Thessalonians, he wrote that the man of sin will be revealed and will exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped as God, so that he sits as God in the temple of God. And so we put all those pieces together and we understand that the abomination of desolation, therefore, it refers to either an image of the Antichrist being set up in the temple or a platform or throne so that the Antichrist himself can be set up there in the temple so that the people of the world can come and worship him, or they're, maybe not can, uh, they're made to come and worship him as God. And that failure to do so will result in one's death. The setting up of that idolatrous image or that person will signal the beginning of a time of great persecution of God's people on the earth. Now again, Going back to the Daniel passage from earlier, we know when 
that event, that abomination of desolation, we know when that event will take place. It will take place exactly halfway into the tribulation period. We see that there in verse 27, it says, and for half of the week, seven years, for half of that week, three and a half years, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. And so three and a half weeks or three and a half years. Revelation 13 specifies that even a little more specifically. It says it's going to be 42 months, Revelation 13, 5. Revelation chapter 11 breaks it down even more specifically than that and actually gives us the number of days that you could check off on a calendar where it says they will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I'll appoint my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days. And so this is not some random period of time that's going to last about three and a half years or about 42 months, it will last exactly 1,260 days. And they will be days of great trouble, not for God's church, but rather for the Jewish people. Because you'll notice, I shared this verse last week, you'll notice when Jeremiah describes this period of great trouble, this period of great tribulation, he uses the phrase and he says, it is the time of Jacob's distress. Jacob, of course, being the name of the patriarch of the Jewish people who would have his name changed to Israel. We're speaking here of the nation of Israel. The phrase Jacob's distress, it refers to the nation of Israel, which will experience persecution and natural disasters such as have never before been seen on the earth, even worse than the Holocaust of the 1900s. This is the period properly known as the Great tribulation, the final three and a half years of that seven-year tribulation period. Where will the church be? Well, that dispensation will have come to a close, and God will once more be dealing directly with his people Israel, much like he did in the Old Testament dispensation. The great tribulation is the time of Jacob's distress, and this is why in Jesus's words there in Mark 13, mention is made in the passage of being delivered over to councils and beaten in synagogues. It's why it speaks of those in Judea being told to flee unto the mountains. Sometime prior to this abomination, and depending on the view in which you hold, it's either going to be right before the abomination of desolation, or it's going to be sometime three and a half years or more before the abomination of desolation. But sometime prior to this abomination, God will take his church out of this world and call them home to heaven. Paul tells us about this. Again, uh, in one of his letters to the Thessalonians, this time the first letter, this is what Paul writes. i got to get a drink here. I'm dying. Uh, you can have a drink too. Every, let's all take a drink. I'm sorry. This is what Paul said. <clears throat> Verse 16 of chapter 4, he said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, and notice that Paul expected he would be part of this crowd. He says, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so 
we will always be with the Lord. Now, I want to draw your attention right there in the middle of that little verse that I shared with you, a couple verses, is that phrase in my version that says, caught up together, verse 17. That word, caught up, is the Greek word harpazo. It's translated into the Latin language of the Bible as the word rapturus. And you can hear a similar sounding English word. The English translation of that Latin word is the word rapture. And so this caught up, this uh, snatching away, is what is commonly referred to in the English language as the rapture. Now, it's a word which means, as I said, to snatch away, but it's a word which means to snatch away suddenly and even violently. And so you think of the ascension of Jesus Christ that we read about in the opening chapter of the book of Acts. It says that the disciples stood there and watched him as he went. That's not what's being described here with this word caught up together. It's to be caught up and snatched away suddenly and even violently. It's where God takes his church out of this world prior to his pouring out his wrath on this world, which we read about from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 19. And it's my conviction that this will occur before the start of the seven-year tribulation period. And so, since it's, a, according to this view, that event occurs before the start of the tribulation, the view that I hold to is what is commonly referred to as the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I will say, however, that I know good brothers and sisters in the faith that believe that the snatching away that's being described by the Apostle Paul, it will take place either in conjunction with the abomination of desolation or just before the abomination, abomination of desolation. And since then in their thinking, the event comes right before the pouring out of God's wrath upon this earth, that view is commonly referred to as the pre-wrath rapture of the church. So there's the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, sometime prior to the seven-year peace agreement, and then there's the pre-wrath rapture of the church, sometime just before this abomination of desolation. One way or, the, or another, this event will occur, and it will put into full force those events that are going to usher in the answer to the disciples' question back in verses 3 and back in verse 4, which we were looking at last week. And you remember, their question was, when will these things be? Again, to remind you, you recall in verse 2, as Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple, that Jesus said, you see these wonderful stones that are here? Not one stone will be left upon another. And as I told you last week, the disciples were shocked by that. How could that be? And they, they could only associate such an event had to be connected in some way with the end of the world. And so then they asked Jesus a question, when will the world come to an end? They say, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of these things uh, and when they will, are about to be accomplished? And that's the question Jesus has been uh, answering during this entire discourse of the opening verses of Mark chapter 13. Things like famines, he said, and earthquakes, and wars, and rumors in war of wars. But remember, after describing each of those things, Jesus declared, but the end is not yet. These things are but, he says in, in Mark 13, they're but the beginning of the birth pains. Each of those things, they're not the sign of the end, but they're the signs of the beginning of the end. 
The sign of the end that Jesus declared would be the sign of the end is the abomination of desolation. And so notice how verse 14 begins. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation, that's the event that will ultimately be the sign that the end has come. In fact, you can number how many days until the end will come, 1,260 days, as I pointed out earlier. And so verses 5 through 13, they deal with events leading up to and including the early years of the tribulation, while verses 14 through 18 deal with that event smack dab in the middle of the tribulation, which marks the start of the great tribulation, a time of great trouble for God's people. Now, how close are we to these days? Well, think again of what the doctor says to the expectant mother when she calls, uh, thinking she might be in labor. The doctor asks, what's the frequency and what's the intensity of the labor pains? And so are we seeing and hearing of wars and rumors of wars? Check. Has there been an increase in earthquakes and famines and pestilences in the world? Yes, check, check, and check. Are God's people increasingly suffering hostility and persecution because of their faith? Well, once again, check. Consider this also, the material that we consider today. It presumed two things. One, it presumed that there would be a nation of Israel that the Antichrist would sign a peace agreement with. And secondly, it presumes that there will be a temple upon which the Antichrist will set either himself or his image that people will come to worship. And for nearly 1,900 years, the nation of Israel ceased to exist as a nation, and yet miraculously, as I said earlier, it was reborn out of the rubble of World War II. One more indicator of everything falling into place that lets us know that the days are drawing near. And as far as the temple, well, you might be surprised to learn that there are presently people actively working to construct various parts of the temple furniture or equipment, if you think of it that way, that would be required to operate any temple that would be built. There are also organizations actively tracing the genealogy of the Jewish people so that when the temple is restored, a priestly line could immediately be known and put into place to perform the various rituals that need to be performed in that temple. There are even farms in Israel and in other parts of the world that are presently breeding the various animals, according to the requirements, that would be used as sacrifice in that temple. Example, the red heifer, for instance. These days are drawing near. And also, don't forget, a temple building is not actually required for all of these things to take place. For a temple building was not actually what God mandated of the Jewish people. Rather, he mandated of them a tabernacle. Another term for that is a tent. A tent which would be erected to perform all of these various rituals that he required of them. And so a temple building, that might take years to erect. But once the proper materials are gathered, a, a tent, that could go up in a matter of days or hours even. And so are we drawing near to that day? I'm convinced that we are. And let me tell you, we rejoice in that reality. 
We don't rejoice in the reality that the coming of the Antichrist is near or a time of great persecution uh, and great trial is coming, but what we rejoice in is the personal and the physical return of Jesus Christ. We still have more of this passage to consider here, but I want you to skip up with me to verse 24 for a second. In verse 24, it says, But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heavens, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then notice verse 26. It says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and with great glory. That is the event that we long for. We long for the day when Jesus Christ will return, establish his kingdom and rule, and when he will reign in righteousness. When will that day come? We don't know for sure. But based on the signs that we are observing, it sure seems that it is increasingly imminent. And so with that, let me ask you this question. If the coming of Jesus Christ for his church were to be today, would you be ready? Are you ready? Or have you been lulled to sleep by all the trinkets of this world? And let me ask you this, or let me say this. Even if Jesus Christ does not return this year for his church, or even next year, or even in your lifetime, the reality is if he doesn't come for you, you will inevitably upon your death, go to him. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, does that thought scare you? Or does it cause you to rejoice? If you've not yet gotten right with God through his son, such a thought should terrify you. Because the Bible says that after death comes the judgment. If, on the other hand, you have received the gift of salvation that is made available to you in Jesus Christ, then judgment has already been meted out upon another, Jesus Christ. As the Bible then says, there is therefore now no condemnation for you, for those that are in Christ Jesus, because the penalty for, that part, for your sins has already been paid. And so the same exact event which caused one to be terrified could cause another to rejoice. My friends, it is time for every one of us to get right with God. And if you have never acknowledged that your sin separates you from a holy God, it's time for you to do that. It's time for you to receive the gift of his son that is offered on your behalf. Jesus Christ received the judgment so that you would not have to receive the judgment for your sin. And if you have never called out to God in prayer to wash you and to cleanse you and to forgive you of your sins, do that today. Now let me speak briefly, though, to the Christian. You have already cried out to God. At some earlier point in your life, you received his free gift of salvation that was made possible by the work of his son. You've been walking with him. Let me ask you, have you grown complacent in your walk with him in those days? Have you grown sort of comfortable here on the earth? Have you been playing around with sin and with compromise? Listen, hear these words. The time is short. Jesus Christ is coming again. And it very well may be in our lifetimes. And so when he returns for his church, will you be ready for his return? 
Now, I have to imagine some of us sitting here thinking of this, immediately an area might come to mind, perhaps a few areas come to mind where you're not quite where you know you need to be with the Lord. If that's the case, I just want to encourage you, take some time today before getting up and getting involved with all sorts of other things, take some time today to give that area over to him. Have your heart set on heaven. Lift up your head, as it says in another place, because our redemption is drawing nigh. Be found ready when he comes. Let's pray together. Father, you know us. You created us. You observe us. Uh, you're all-knowing. And you know the tendency of our hearts as human beings. Lord, that we take our eyes off of the creator and instead fix them on created things. Created things of uh, your making as well as things and trinkets and toys that we create of ourselves here on the earth. And, and Father, you know our tendency is to be distracted by those things. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would work in us in such a way that you would use these things that we've considered today to really just sort of shake us out of a place of complacency. And Lord, to fix our eyes once more, maybe as they used to be once before, to fix our eyes once more on eternal things. Work in us. And Father, any of us that are watching today that don't yet know you, have not yet come to the place of being forgiven of our sins and getting right with God through Jesus, Lord, I just ask that in your Holy, by your Holy Spirit, in the quietness of their heart, you would do a transforming and changing work. You would convince them of their need for a Savior and that Jesus Christ alone is that Savior and that they would be reborn. And Father, we love you. We trust you. We want to long for you in a greater way. And so bless your word as it enters into the deep places of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.